The material presented in this podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. For legal issues that arise, the listener should consult legal counsel. Welcome to Works For Me, an ongoing conversation about employment law and how it works for and possibly against those it is meant to serve. We hope to enlighten and inform anyone affected by employment law, and if you work or employ those who do, that means you. Works For Me is a production of the North Carolina Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section. I'm Will Oden, your host, an employment attorney based in Wilmington, North Carolina. With me today are fellow employment attorneys, Nina Parati and Grant Osborne. Hey, guys. Hi there. Hi, good morning. <laughs> to our audience, we would say at the outset, this is not our day job. This is also our first attempt at a podcast, so please be kind. Before we delve into our day jobs and what we're going to talk about today, which is what's employment law anyway, Grant, can you give us a little bit of historical context for what we're going to be talking about today? Sure, very briefly. Um, and as Will, uh, you were saying, this is not our, our this is our first podcast, so this may show. But very briefly, a lot of American law comes from English law. Uh, in with English law, originally the law of employment law was known as master and servant. Not too many years ago, if you looked up in the books under employment law, you would find master and servant, which tells you a lot about what that relationship was like. I got to tell you, when I uh, when I was first starting out as a lawyer. Uh, dating myself quite a bit. We only had the books. We didn't have uh, any <laughs> Westlaw, Alexis, or any of the uh, digital tools we have right now. And you looked up master and servant when you were looking at any issue having to do with employment. And didn't that feel odd even it, then? It did. It, was it sounded unnerving. strange to me, but I'm right there with you. And one of the fun facts that actually I learned in the course of preparing for this is the origin of the uh, Doctrine of Employment at Will. Uh, in the 14th century, I promised not to talk too much about this, there was the Black Death. People died by the millions in Europe, and so there was a shortage of workers. So there were actually laws in place that made it a criminal offense for a worker to leave the employment before the term that was agreed was up. Yeah. People were prosecuted for this by the hundreds of thousands. And then eventually, fast forward to the United States, the American Revolution, that doctrine seemed to be antithetical to notions of American liberty, so this notion arose that employees should be able to leave the job whenever they want, for any reason they want. Known as the at-will doctrine, correct? That's well, right. Well, it's so interesting that the at-will doctrine had its genesis in being kind to the employee who was basically an indentured servant That's before right. <laughs> these, uh, the, the doctrine came about. Um, these days, however, at will is often uh, a phrase that is bandied about by employers sort of as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And um, I'm here to tell you all that it is not the get-out-of-jail-free card that um, some might like it to be, that actually there are some important exceptions to the at-will doctrine that exist. Um, not only for the employee who has a contract, obviously an employee who has a contract for a term certain, it starts at a certain date and it ends at another date, that's an exception to the at-will doctrine. But even more importantly from my perspective is that an employer can terminate an employee for any reason at all, that's the at-will doctrine, other than an unlawful reason. And so what we're gonna learn about, I think during the course of all of these podcasts is what are 
these unlawful reasons and how do we avoid them? Yeah, do, you uh, ever, do you ever find, Nina, that employers and employees disagree about the real reasons sometimes? There's no, no <laughs> question about it, Grant. And actually, that's a lot of what we do, right, when we negotiate is we're negotiating what the employer says is, gee, we terminated Jimmy Jones, Joe because he was late 10 times in a row. And I say, well, no, you terminated him because he complained about uh, race discrimination or age or, or, or gender. And uh, I know that because uh, uh, Jill over there, she was late 10 days in a row, the, the lovely uh, Jill, who's um, a white employee. Uh, and my employee, who is African-American, he committed the same infraction, and yet um, after he complained about race discrimination, he was terminated. I'll chime in if I may. One thing, I promise not to lapse into my memory too much, but I'll tell you, I remember one thing verbatim from law school, probably only one, in evidence class when the professor said the law is not about the truth, but rather about the apparent truth. It's, which is mind-boggling and very thorny if you think about it too long. So let's so move true. on. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, before we move too far on, can you both take a minute and just give the audience an idea of your background? Because you both do approach cases from different perspectives. And I think sure. we've already hinted at that just in this little colloquy we've had, Grant. <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. Um, and so I, I'll give you a little bit about my background. I think I was an aspiring plaintiff's employment lawyer by the time I reached eight years old. Uh, in the third grade, I passed around a petition in school because I thought it was incredibly unfair that only boys were allowed to carry the flag at assembly. Uh, girls were not permitted. And so I passed around the petition and everyone signed it. And the next year, uh, the new rule was that anyone who could carry the flag was able to do so. And unfortunately, that didn't include yours truly because I've always somewhat been height challenged and uh, I didn't quite uh, uh, make the grade of someone strong enough to carry the flag. But others did and it made me proud that I was able to do that. So my goal as a, a plaintiff's employment lawyer, and it's been there since childhood is to empower the powerless. That's how I see my role and I try to do justice to that every day. You'll find my story is much less precocious than that, uh, but I developed an interest in employment law at an early age too because I had lots of different kinds of jobs in high school. But between college and law school I was able to work as a legal assistant for a large firm in DC. I use the term legal assistant very sparingly because, or loosely, because that's really not what I was. But I had the chance to take notes during collective bargaining negotiations in which this firm represented all the major hotels in D.C. And one of the fun facts, at least to me, that was surprising was that one of the issues for negotiation was how much beer the cooks were given while working in the hot kitchens. Uh, they had their priorities straight, apparently. I found that surprising, <laughs> but it's, uh, I was fascinated then with the all the different aspects are implicated by employment law, and it's uh, it's been a real joy to practice it for a long time. So, Grant, you primarily represent management. Nina, you yes. primarily represent employees. Mm -hmm. Why why should we care about employment law if we have at will in place? That's a very good question, um, and uh, we need to care about it because there are. Um, there are rules that govern the employment relationship. As I mentioned earlier, you can terminate an employee for any reason at all other than an unlawful reason. And the unlawful reasons are what we need to be worried about here. Um, they run the gamut from terminating someone because of their, if your termination is motivated by gender, by race, by, um, uh, by religion, by age, by disability, for example. Uh, it, it, if that's a, those would be unlawful reasons to terminate the employee. 
uh, or alternatively because you want to retaliate against an employee for having complained about um, workplace conditions, for example, health and safety concerns, for example, or because they believe that they or someone else has been the victim of discrimination or harassment in the workplace. Um, so there are real reasons to care. And aside, and, and I want to put on the employer hat. Yeah, please. You know, it's a little bit uncomfortable for me. The hat's a little tight and it's a little bit askew. <laughs> you can do it. But I'm I sure. think I can do it. And what I will say is this, aside from the legal exposure, that an employer can face if they don't follow the rules and treat their employees fairly. Aside from that, just as importantly, I think for the employer should be that treating their employees well fosters a loyal and dedicated workforce. When employees feel that the employer actually cares about their well-being, that the employer wants to make sure that they uh, follow the rules and that they um, do uh, right by the employee, then they get back tenfold. And again, you know, I love to talk about this win-win situation. There's another example, I think, of a win-win is that the employer who's mindful of their obligations in the workplace, and maybe even goes a step beyond that, is the employer that's going to be far less likely to be sued and is going to have a workforce that actually talks about we and does that and uses that word with pride when referring to their employer. That's very well put, Nina. I would echo everything you're saying because you're it. exactly right. It's about a relationship. This is a relationship-based uh, legal context in which you have employers on one side and employees on the other. Employers have to know what the rules are. And people go into business to be not to be employers, but they typically need employees, so they've got to know what the rules are so they can run their businesses successfully and stay out of a ditch. And as, as you know, and as much our audience may know and hopefully is learning, there's so many ways in which employers can get in trouble. If they don't know what the rules are, how do they even know how to play the game? So they've got to know what the rules are. And to your point, they need to know how to value their employees because, as you were saying, if they value their employees, their employees will be motivated, loyal, et cetera, et cetera. And on the employee side, the employees need to know what the rules of the game are, too. Yeah, let's talk about why the employees should care, Grant. I want you to put on the same very uncomfortable hat. Sure. Well, I think it's, <laughs> speaking as an employee, personally, and right. when I've been an employee most there of my life, uh, most people we know, unless they're unable or unwilling to work or just don't have to work, they're employees or they love people who are. And so that relationship is critically important. There's family and friends, but employment's way up there. And they should know what the rules of the game are because they have so much invested financially and psychologically and emotionally in that relationship. We all know there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people could have uh, be misinformed about what the rules are. And so it's their advantage to know what their rights are and frankly what their rights are not. So they can know how to behave and how to operate effectively in that relationship. So I think it's important for uh, both sides, employer and employee, to know what the rules are and to your point how they should treat each other to get the most they can out of that relationship. So I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but we do need to talk about some of the nuts and bolts here. So sure. Nina, jump in with federal law and walk us through some of the laws that do govern the employment relationship sure. so that our audience is aware. I'm going to give you the greatest hits uh, right. version of uh, the, the main statutes that come to mind when I think about employment law. And first I'll start with the mothership of all uh, employment law, and that's got to be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is a federal law that prohibits employers from discriminating against employees on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. And Title VII applies to employers with 15 or more employees, um, and it also prohibits 
retaliation by employers for, against employees who file a charge of discrimination, who speak out against discrimination, whether they do so on behalf of themselves or others, or who participate in an investigation, proceeding, or hearing on behalf of themselves or others when they have complained about their Title VII rights being violated. From Title VII, other federal statutes have grown, right? If you notice, I didn't mention age in that list of protected categories. Well, there's a separate law called the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, uh, which protects workers over the age of 40 from discrimination on the basis of their young. age. That's 40 years old? That's right. always been amazing to me. It sounds so young. It does really sound young, and everything is relative, right, Grant? Yes, yes. I mean, I think uh, the 40-year-old has a real challenge um, in proving uh, that uh, her rights have been violated under the ADEA if she is being replaced by someone, say, who's 37 right, or right. 36. But as, as you get older, that 40 is the threshold, and as you get older, it becomes more and more of a viable um, uh, scenario where, say, the 55-year-old is replaced by a 30-year-old. And there are other indicia that show that the um, choice uh, was not motivated by say the 30-year-old being a better performer or the 30-year-old being more economical, but instead by a perception that that person is younger, has fresher ideas, uh, code word for that is fresh blood, for example, or new energy. Um, so that is an example of, um, of uh, where the Age Discrimination and Employment Act can take effect. So you're saying in that kind of context that the employer had better be able to justify why it made that decision or maybe accused of discriminating based on age? I think that could possibly be a scenario, mm -hmm. yes. And I've had cases where uh, my older uh, uh, client has been replaced by someone substantially younger and there seems to be no good reason. Uh, and that sometimes can be enough. Um, right, right. Uh, can we all just get along? Wouldn't yes, that be nice? Yes, yes. <laughs> then there's the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, which, uh, as amended, which uh, protects employees from discrimination on the basis of their disability. Uh, so if that employee uh, is disabled but can otherwise do their job with a reasonable accommodation, and instead the employer chooses to terminate them or demote them or transfer them to a less desirable job when they ask for help, um, that potentially can put the employer on the hook. Uh, and that applies to employees of 15, uh, employers with 15 or more employees. Uh, there's the FMLA uh, Act, the Family Medical Leave Act, which applies to 50 or more employees, any employer with 50 or more employees, and allows employees to uh, take leave for a serious uh, health condition of their own or on behalf of um, a family member. And if the employer interferes with that leave or retaliates against the employer uh, employee for taking that leave, they could be on the hook for double damages. Uh, if I could interrupt, can you imagine yeah, what it's sure. like to tell employers all these laws? They, they, they'd rather go play golf. They get in the employment business and they hear about all these things because, because it sounds like a minefield to them, as you can appreciate. I, I can certainly appreciate that, and that's why it's so important, though, that they take the time to really understand what they're able to do and not able to do under these laws. The last one I want to mention is the FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which governs um, how much, um, uh, which governs uh, exempt employees, those that do not have to um, 
those are salaried employees who um, are not governed by how many hours they work and non-exempt employees where the employer actually has to pay the employee time and a half for every hour worked over 40. Grant, what about some state laws that apply? Yes, there, there are a lot. Every state has its own employment laws. North Carolina has quite a few. I'll just rattle off a few uh, since we don't have a whole lot of time. But uh, example one is the Workers' Compensation Act. There's a statute that requires employers of a certain size, a very small size actually, to maintain workers' compensation insurance so that if employees suffer a job-related injury or illness, they'll be protected. Uh, there's the unemployment security law, which entitles employees to unemployment compensation if they're unemployed through no fault of their own. Uh, and as we were just suggesting, there are often a lot of disputes about whether the employee in fact suffered a work-related illness or injury or is unemployed through no fault of his or her own. There's also what's called the North Carolina Wage and Hour Act, which as the name suggests, pertains to the wages paid to employees and the hours of their work. Uh, Nina mentioned a moment ago the Fair Labor Standards Act. Well, that has a, that, that has a lot of teeth, but the NC Wage and Hour Act uh, has a lot of teeth as well and imposes lots of obligations on employers in terms of how they pay their employees. Uh, there's also, finally, what's called the Persons with Disabilities Protection Act, which operates much like the ADA and protects applicants and employees from discrimination based upon disability as defined in a very particular way. So that's just that's, that's a quick list. There are other laws as well, but that's a quick list of some good examples. Well, for our audience, depending on their background, they may feel like they're now drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, there's a lot to it. And we're hoping <laughs> that over the next few episodes, we'll be able to drill down from this 3,000-foot view to really hash out what all this means. But before we close out today, our inaugural podcast, I'd love it if each of you would just take a few minutes and give us an example of a story that, and a, and a case that meant something to you personally as a lawyer that makes you proud to be who you are and what you do. So right. ladies I, I first. I have to tell you, I love that question. I love that question, man, uh, because um, I, you know it's so wonderful to wake up every day and absolutely love what it is that you do. And I can honestly say that since I've become a plaintiff's employment lawyer, that's how I feel. One of the cases that means the most to me is something that I actually um, uh, litigated quite recently in the wake of the Me Too movement. It involved an employee who was subjected to repeated harassment by a colleague in a very large, reputable workplace. Uh, and she complained about it and nothing was done. She complained and nothing was done. Uh, and then the relationship sort of devolved and the predator who was just sexually harassing her began sexually assaulting her. And believe it or not, she complained repeatedly about that too. And again, the employer just pushed it under the rug and allowed this uh, colleague who was a predator to remain in the workplace. Well, she became so distraught, she went out on FMLA leave for her serious health condition caused by workplace stress. And um, I got involved. Uh, we then negotiated on her behalf, alleging, of course, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and retaliation for having complained about it. And uh, we not only reached a settlement that uh, allowed my client, if she wished to retire now, to do so because it was so large, but even more important to her was the fact that part of the settlement involved us uh, getting the employer's um, uh, signing off on changing, revamping, 
It's the manner in which it trained its employees, and that includes bystander training with respect to sexual harassment issues, the manner in which it investigated such uh, claims, and the manner in which it dealt with the perpetrator uh, if they were found to have indeed committed the offense um, that they were accused of. And I see that circling back, full circle here, as a win-win. The employee obviously won because she got um, uh, a substantial amount of money, but more importantly, she got changes, systemic changes in this very large workplace, uh, workplace. and the employer won. The employer won because those laws, that those rules that they put in place um, will actually make, for, as I described, for a happier workforce, for a more productive uh, a workforce, and in fact for an employer who is far less, less exposed to liability down the road than they were before they put those new policies in place. And I love a win-win, and that's my favorite story. That's a great story. I wonder if the employer felt like they were winning at the time. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. That so, was doubtful, but I understand Nina's point. I get the story. It's a, it sure. is an inspiring story. And I'd be the first to admit that wrong does occur in the workplace. It certainly does occur. Uh, but one of the reasons that I enjoy uh, what I do, primarily on the employer side, is that I have a chance to help employers navigate this minefield of federal and state law that comes from the legislative branch, the executive branch, the judicial branch, so many people in government telling employers what they need to do and how they need to do it. For very good reasons, often many of these laws come from a very good place, but employers need to know what the rules are. Employers create jobs. The owners assume lots of risk personally. They often do it in hopes of a great financial reward, but sometimes in, uh, for not so great financial reward. So they need to know what the rules are, and they need people who are able to tell them uh, how to navigate that thicket of rules and regulations uh, so that they can maximize their business opportunities, hopefully create even more jobs and create more, uh, more benefit for more people. And so that's why I really enjoy doing what I do because the law is constantly evolving and the rules are always changing. Well, thank you both very much. I've enjoyed my time here with you today. This was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. We hope that you have enjoyed this edition of Works For Me, a production of the North Carolina Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section. Find out more about NCBA's Labor and Employment section on our blog page at ncbarblog.com slash category slash LE and on the Labor and Employment section page at ncbar.org. You also can follow the NCBA on Twitter at ncbaorg. Until next time, we hope that everything works for you.